All praises to the Most High God, creative heaven and earth. Bless his holy name. Good morning, pastors, elders, church family. My name is Margaret. I'm a little nervous, so you probably hear it in my voice. Um, when the pastor asked me to read the, <laughs> the scripture, believe it or not, last night before I went to bed, I was thinking about that. So that's only the Holy Spirit working in me. I'm from New York. So I have church online at 8 o'clock in the morning, and then I come here, so I'm torn between where my loyalty is. But, but apparently the Lord has had plans for me to, you know, make this my new church family. So, <laughs> and then he led me to the scripture, like, um, so when he asked me, I wasn't surprised because that was the Lord speaking to me last night before I went to sleep. So all that said, I will read the morning scripture. If I don't cry. Scripture reading this morning is from Mark 8, um, 34 through 9, 1. And calling to the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I, when I was coming up here, I was feeling a little bit nervous because you may not know this, but every time I, I come up here, uh, I forget everything that I had planned on saying. <laughs> no matter how many times I rehearse it, it really doesn't matter. I always forget it. <clears throat> Which just goes to show uh, that the Lord's grace is uh, greater than man's weakness, right? Um, speaking of that, uh, what a passage to preach on today, huh? Maybe some of you are coming in here saying, man, I was hoping to get something really encouraging uh, to take with me through the week. Uh, I hope that we can get there. I hope that we actually get there. Because for, for those of you, if you know Jesus and you hear a passage like this, Usually the thing that you get, the instant feeling that you get is guilt, right? Because there's nobody who's, who can probably stand up and be like, I am doing this 100% of the time, right? Nobody's actually doing that. And then Jesus uses this language of shame, you know? Like, if you're ashamed of me in this sinful and adulterous generation, I'll be ashamed of you in the next one. Uh, that just sort of like lays it on really thick. So you're, you're stuck with this sense of guilt and inadequacy, like, man, I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not doing enough. Hi. Sorry, that's my son. Um, don't look at him. Don't, don't look at me either. Look at Jesus. <laughs> so anyways, you feel, you kind of feel bad, like, I don't actually do this. And it makes you feel kind of worse and kind of guilty. And I just want you to, if that's you, I want to acknowledge that. That's how we feel sometimes. So I want you to take that feeling and hold on to it, because I don't want that to be like clouding the rest of what we do. And we will get back to it, I promise. Now, there might be other people 
hearing this, you know, what was just read, and you don't know Jesus, you don't follow him, maybe, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here, and maybe one of the things that you hear is like, huh, Jesus really said that? Did he really say that? I thought Jesus was just a good, you know, was just a nice, good moral teacher person. And, uh, well, Jesus did say this, and I'll leave it to you to make the judgments, but I think that um, one of the things that God is always doing in Scripture is challenging, challenging us in the ways that we think about him, in the ways we think about ourselves, in the ways that we think about the world. He wants us to wrestle, wrestle with him. And that's part of the reason why when you read the Bible, you go, huh, I don't get that. And then what you have to do is you have to wrestle with, well, do I think the Bible's wrong? Do I think God is wrong? Or do I think I am wrong? I don't know. You have to wrestle with it. So this is one of those texts that you have to wrestle with. And actually, ironically, part of the teaching of this, the overall context of this, is that sort of wrestling match. Now remember, I'm going to grab this because this also helps me because I, f- I forget everything, you know, and I get nervous. Um, this serves as the context for this overall passage, right? Remember a few weeks ago, if you've been with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and the last miracle that Jesus did was healing a blind man. But do you remember it took two goes to make it happen? He heals him the first time, and the guy says, oh, I can see, but people kind of look like trees walking around. And then Jesus heals him again, and he can see clearly. And that was, that was an embodiment, a metaphor of what it is like to follow Jesus. He doesn't just heal you once and now you're all good and you see everything with perfect clarity. That was what, what was being taught. And then the very next thing that happens is Peter sees with clarity. Jesus says, what's the scuttlebutt, guys? What are people saying about me? And Peter says, you know, they say you're a prophet. And he says, what do you think? Peter says, you're the Christ. Aha, he sees, Peter sees. And then Jesus says, I'm going to go and suffer, die, suffer and die. And Peter says, no, you're not. Peter doesn't see. Jesus is like a tree walking around. He's not seeing clearly. So you have the perfect embodiment of this idea that you see and then you don't see. We are constantly being challenged, being called to another level of clarity with Jesus because we have wrong opinions, wrong ways of looking at the world. All of us have this, even nowadays. It's not like the disciples were a bunch of bumbling idiots and were different. I honestly think God has them in there looking like that so that we can be like, oh, okay, they got it? I, I guess I'm not doing that bad, right? So that's the overall context, this challenge, challenge about the way that they think about things. Now, for them, it's this idea of what Messiah will be like. This is what the Messiah will be like. Whatever they thought that was, and there's, uh, if you go back through the literature of that time period, there was a lot of talk about Messiah, he'll be this, that, and the other. Um, And there were differing opinions. It's not like there was a single opinion. But what they all did not think the Messiah would do was suffer and die. Nobody thought that. So right right now with the disciples and and Peter, you have have this tension between what they believe about Jesus and what Jesus is actually saying. Now that tension is actually heightened because of what they were taught in the Old Testament about who the Messiah would be. One of those titles for the Messiah was the prophet, this prophet who will come, who will be like Moses. And this is first brought up in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18. I'm going to turn there really quick. If you want to, you could turn there as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord is speaking. He's speaking to Moses and to the people of Israel through Moses. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 18 verse 18. God says, I will raise up for them, for the people of Israel, 
a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, so it will be an Israelite. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. I'm pausing for a second to let you feel the gravity of that. What he's saying is that when this prophet comes, he's going to speak for God. And whether or not you listen to him, God will hold you, pers- God personally holds you accountable for whether or not you listen to him. So if Peter is right, this is that prophet like Moses. And that prophet is saying the word of God and he's saying, I'm going to suffer and die. You see how the, the screw has been turned a little tighter. There's a little more tension. There's more, uh, there's more temptation to say, you don't really mean that, Jesus. You don't really mean that. Because that means like, I, I have to listen to you. I, I actually have to. I'll be held accountable to God whether or not I listen to you. By the way, we know now that Jesus was that prophet whom God spoke through. And he will still hold us accountable to whether or not we listen to him. Just a thought. Uh, You might have been hoping I was going to soften this a little bit, but uh, sorry. (laughs) Can't do it. Um, So that's the context. This major challenge, what Jesus has said is that I'm going to go suffer. And then he's essentially saying here, those who follow me are going to do that as well. You're going to experience a kind of death. So what is Jesus actually um, actually saying in the teaching here. I want to just look at two, two major things. You could, we could spend a lot of time on, on what he's teaching here. But at the very least, Jesus is challenging this notion that we have, what I call the game of life. Anyone can call it the game of life, not the board game. Uh, but the board game kind of actually does bring this out. What I mean by the game of life is we have this game of, of self-preservation, of Uh, prosperity of one-upmanship, where we are constantly trying to gain, constantly trying to ascend some kind of ladder. And we do that because we're trying to actually avoid different kinds of death. In Scripture, there are are multiple kinds of death. There's, of course, the, the ending of your physical life here. That's the most obvious one. But there's also an eternal death that happens after you die. And then there's a kind of death where you're sort of the walking dead, where your life is so um, without meaning, without purpose, without God. And that is a living kind of death. And so what Jesus is doing is he's challenging this notion that we have that we're constantly, we, we will not be okay we're not going to be okay unless I get to whatever the bar is, right? I will not be okay until I get these friends, maybe when you're a teenager. I will not be okay until I'm accepted by this person, till I get married, till I get unmarried, till I get this career, till I get out of this career, till I have a family, till my family's grown up and moved out. Whatever it is, we're chasing something. We're constantly chasing something. And when we do that, what we're actually doing is we are giving our life away. Do you know that as soon as you're born, As soon as we're born, we start this march towards death. Every day, we're walking closer to death, right? The end of our our physical existence right here in this age. We're walking towards that. And all along the way, all along the way, we're giving our life to all different kinds of things. 
Whatever you give your attention to, your money to, your love to, your heart to, your energy to, that's your life. You're giving your life away. We're all doing it. It's not like uh, there are some people who give, it, who give it away and there's other people who don't. No, we're all giving it away all the time. The question is, what are you giving it to? And is what you're giving it to going to actually put life back into it? Is it going to give you life or is it just going to take it? Because we're constantly going through these exchanges, right? I'm going to exchange four years of my life in return for a college degree, which is supposed to pay out in giving me a good job. That has not worked out so well, I would say, you know? Um, not just for me, but for a lot of people who are like, man, I just spent 60 grand on college and I'm selling Ashley's furniture next to somebody who has no debt, you know? Um, but life does that, right? You give your life away to things and they don't pay out. They make this promise that they can't return. So that's what Jesus is challenging. His disciples are actually playing that game. Their idea of Messiah is that he's going to come and he's going to rule the world from Jerusalem. And because we're attached to him, we're going to be in his cabinet. So there were these stories, right, of the disciples fighting with one another over who's going to be the greatest, who's going to get to be the vice president, you know, who's going to be the secretary of state. And even the, the sons of thunder brothers, James and John, their mom comes and says, hey, Jesus, I want you to do me a favor. You know, will you make my, uh, my son over here the, the vice chancellor and, and make this one the secretary of defense? And all, all the while, Jesus has to remind them, wrong game. You're not playing the right game. So they're trying to, like, leverage Jesus as Messiah as a way of, of being their trump card so that they will end up at the top of the heap. That's what they're actually doing. And Jesus is saying, that is not what any of this is about. Actually, if you embrace your own death, if you embrace the death and suffering of life, for my sake and for the Gospels, you're actually going to find life. You will actually live. You know that nobody, nobody lives forever who is not connected to the life of God. That's just true. There's nothing that's going to pay out giving your life to like giving your life to Jesus. Just, just saying. And if you're hearing that and you're saying, well, that sounds kind of exclusive, you know, that sounds pretty narrow. I thought there were like many ways to God, many paths to eternal life or enlightenment or however you want to call it. You know, there's the Buddhism path and the Hinduism path and the secular humanist path and various other paths. I, I thought that, you know, Everyone's just, just trying. They got their own language and they got their own thing going on. That's actually not what the Bible teaches. Jesus is saying, not just if you give your life away. Like for me, I could, I could try and soften the, the guilt over like, oh, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And I can say, I give my life away to my children and my wife. No, he says, for, for, my, for Jesus' sake and for the Gospels. That's what you have to give your life to, to find that eternal life. Because you know what? Our kids are going to disappoint us. Our spouses are going to disappoint us or they're going to die and leave us. They're not going to be able to put back into us what Jesus can. Only Jesus can do that. And by the way, it is exclusive. I'm not going to try and wiggle out of that one. It's exclusive and it's narrow. Okay? But you know what else is narrow? The fact that the only thing, organic life only lives where there's water. Only where there's water. If there's no water, there's no life. That's why there's almost nothing living in the desert. And those things that are living in the desert have somehow found a way to find water. And we don't complain about water being so narrow, you know. How dare water be so narrow and exclusive, not letting people live without it, you know. But that's how God is. 
God is the water. Jesus actually says that he's the water of life. He tells a woman at a well, he says, I have water to drink of which if you drink it, you will live forever. This is what Jesus is offering. So that's the first thing that he's teaching is, hey, there's this game of life that you're all playing. That's game over if you keep playing that. There's a different game that you can play where you embrace, you embrace your own death and suffering for my sake, and then you'll truly find life, both life in the sense of I have purpose now, I have meaning, I matter, and I don't have to fight to get that. It's just simply given to me because I'm a child of God. I matter because my life is connected, fused into Jesus. So my life actually matters, and my life will live beyond my own death. You'll actually have life. Second thing that he is teaching here, uh, there, there's a lot of things, so I'm just, I'm just going to mention these two. Second thing that he's teaching is, is the latter part in verse, um, what is it, verse 38. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father or with the holy angels. Now, this is, this is one of those things where, especially, like, if you're, if you're not a Christian, and some, some people who've been following Jesus a long time, we're kind of used to hearing Jesus say this, and we've figured out a way to sort of soften it and be like, yeah, that's Jesus, that's what he says. But imagine one of your friends say this, right? Imagine one of your friends say, hey, if you, uh, if you want to be my friend, if you want to come and follow me, uh, what you need to do is um, go down to the morgue and have your coffin made, and then, like, Carry that along with you as you follow me, or your urn, or whatever it is. Because in their day, that's essentially what he's saying, in their day, you see a man carrying a cross, you're looking at a dead man. You're looking at somebody whose life is over. So if someone were to say that right now, you'd be like, that's weird. That's kind of crazy. And then if you were to say this, hey, yeah, so if you're ashamed of me in this life right now, guess what? I'm going to come back with the Holy Father, with God and all his angels to judge the world, and I'll be ashamed of you. If I was to say that to you, you would say, Josh, I think maybe you need a new psychiatrist or uh, maybe you need to get on some new meds um, because that is weird. <laughs> you shouldn't say things like that. So this is, this is one of those uh, passages that is, that is really challenging. What Jesus is actually teaching, uh, among many things, one of the things that he's saying here, and this is... Uh, I don't even know if this is controversial in our age anymore. It's so, it's so riddled with scorn. But this idea that uh, we have this, this world, this life, this age that we live in, and then there's another age that's to come. That is something that is kind of, people will scorn you for believing that. If you say in public, yeah, there's going to be a day of judgment, and there will be a, a bringing in of a, of a new life, a new heavens and on earth here. Now, among Christians, there's like, there's cachet for that. But if you just go and say this among your secular friends or your coworkers, they would be like, really? Like, that's kind of... It's kind of antiquated, isn't it, that idea? It's kind, of, it's kind of passe, you know? And there are reasons for this. I mean, one of the, one of the big ones is because our, our culture has been largely influenced by two, two big thinkers, Nietzsche and Marx, and both of them hated this idea that there is another life. And for Nietzsche, it was largely because then the strong won't be able to get stronger. It, it limits people's potential because in Christianity, it teaches humility. It teaches care and concern for the poor. 
And because of that, you have the strong who are constantly giving up their power and, and ability, their potential for themselves for the sake of someone else. Why? Because there's an age to come in which there will be a judgment for how they actually use their power. So Nietzsche hated it, um, and Marx hated it. Marx hated it because he said Christianity is the opiate of the people, because if you promise people that there's another age in which all their sufferings will be redeemed and rewarded, that they'll have another life to look forward to if they endure sufferings right now, then the proletariat are not going to bind together and revolt against the ruling bourgeois. And then you'll never actually achieve this utopia because for Marx, there's only one age, this one. So these are a couple of the reasons why just in society at large, most people don't necessarily know that that's where those ideas come from. But this is another reason why you will be laughed to scorn if you say this. People will think this is, the, this, is, this is why you Christians never go out and do anything. You're always thinking about heaven, not about this earth. And that's usually people saying that who haven't just looked at every little pocket of, of this world where you find um, severe suffering. You're going to find an evangelical Christian somewhere in there. And I'm saying that not of my own accord. I'm saying that from people who are secular, who are actually honest and look into it. Christians actually do go out and do things in this world because there is a world to come, not in spite of it. So there's another world to come. And uh, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, don't diversify your investments, right? Uh, If you know about investing, if you diversify your investments, it means that like if one thing tanks, you you haven't lost all your money, you've only lost a little bit. Um, so if you don't diversify, if you just put all your eggs in one basket and that, that ship sinks, then you lose everything. Jesus is actually saying, don't diversify your investments between this age and the one to come. He's saying, put them all in the one to come. Don't be ashamed of me in this generation. Don't be ashamed of me in this age. Um, or else I will be ashamed of you in the one to come. Now, that's a very harsh word. I'm just, I'm just going to straight up say it. And if you're, if, you're, uh, if you're not a Christian, you could be like, well, this is why, I guess this is why I'm not. <laughs> I didn't know why I wasn't before, but now I do know why I am. But I would be, I would, uh, be happy uh, to continue to respect your honesty in that and knowing why you are not a Christian. At least you're not going on saying, Jesus is a great, wonderful, moral teacher, and he's just so nice to everybody. That option really is not open when you read a passage like this. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about that. He said, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So, just to sum up that little bit, Jesus is far more than any of us actually know. Even us believers, you know, Jesus hasn't revealed all of who he is to us. He's far more than that. And we should constantly be open for him to challenge us. But what about this guilt thing, right? I, I've laid it on pretty thick. I don't, I, I don't feel like I've loosened the screw to make you more comfortable at this point. 
But I don't think that it is all discomfort here. I don't think this is all just like a threat from Jesus. Um, there, there are three things I, I want to point out here. The first is, notice that, <clears throat> that language there at the end. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me in this generation, I'll be ashamed of you in the next. Who talks like that? What kind of people talk like that? If you, uh, if you share this, what I'm saying, with someone else, and I say something that embarrasses you, and you're embarrassed on my behalf, I'm not going to be that bummed out about it. I might be a little bit like, but not like this, right? This language of, if you're embarrassed about me, I'll be embarrassed about you, that's something that intimates say. It's not like some Democrat says to a Republican, well, if you stand up there and you're embarrassed about me, well, then I'll, I'll be ashamed of you when I get up there. You don't say that. This is something that lovers say, right? Imagine, imagine a couple, young, young couple, they're young, naive love, let's say. And they, they, get, they get done with their time together. Guy runs off, goes to his guy friends. They're like, oh, yeah, you've been spending a lot of time with her, you know? You guys, you guys getting serious? You're doing something? He's like, oh, nah, you know, not a big deal. I'm cool. Yeah, there's not. He's embarrassed about the fact that he really loves her. If she overhears him saying that, what's she going to do? What's she going to say? She's going to say something like this. Like, how dare you? Like, you how dare you do that to me? This is the language of lovers. The invitation the invitation, the way that Jesus is speaking, is, yes, sounds threatening. But it is so much more than that. Because this invitation to follow him, to embrace your own death and suffering, is one in which your life is united to him in the way that a lover's is. So that's the first thing to notice. Second thing is that this actually, what Jesus is presenting, what we hear, what we hear Jesus presenting is a threat. That's what we hear. We hear Jesus presenting a threat. And often in our Bibles, if you have a Bible with like a subtitle in there, sometimes this will be called the cost of discipleship or something like that. Actually, what Jesus is doing is he's offering an opportunity. You, you might call this the cost of non-discipleship. Or you could call it the opportunity of discipleship if you wanted to. Look at what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you're missing out on life. There is so much life for you. I want you to have this life. You need to get it inside of you because you will not live without it. You can't go on without me. It's not possible. Whoever would gain their life will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and for the Gospels, then you will really find it. You will find true life. You'll be tapped into that water that will make you live forever. There's an opportunity here. It's not just a threat. It's an opportunity. And the third thing that I want to point out about this, we have, I haven't actually read it yet. It's chapter 9, verse 1. And he said, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What he's referring to there, scholars debate. Scholars debate about exactly what he's referring to there. Multiple theories, I'm not going to get into all of them. But there are two that aren't necessarily mutually exclusive that I will mention. The first, first one is, what he's talking about is the very next thing that's going to happen, which is Jesus is going to go up a mountain with a couple of his disciples, and the Father is going to lift the veil that's been covering Jesus to this point, that's been shrouding his glory. And they're actually going to see him. They're going to have an experience where they actually see the glory of God. They're going to see this coming age. They're going to see it right there. And they're going to know that it's real. 
Another theory is that not just those three, Peter, James, and John, but all the disciples who are living, (laughs) and a lot of the people here are actually going to see Jesus after he came back from the dead. Now, if somebody says these things, like me, you can say you're crazy. But if someone says these things, and then they actually come back from the dead, they actually put their money where their mouth is, and they say there's a coming age, you might actually believe it. What I'm getting at here is whether it's one or the other or both of those, what Jesus is giving them is a kind of experience that's going to infuse into, the, into them this belief that what he is saying is actually true. There is another age to come. There is a life to be had that you're missing out on if you're not giving your life to Jesus. They're actually going to have an experience that's going to empower and enliven them to live this out. And all the disciples got it. They all, with the exception of Judas, who was a traitor and hanged himself, all the other disciples died a martyr's death. None of them were embarrassed and ashamed of Jesus in this age. They all did it. Not only that, but Paul did as well. Paul got it, and not only did he, did he do it to the end, but he, uh, he talks about it. It's almost like Paul had the same teacher. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this in, in verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I'm going to skip verse 9 down to verse 10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. The apostles got it. They got, Jesus gave them something so that they actually got it. And that's what he has for you and I too. It's not just a threat, it's an opportunity and it's a gift. It's a gift for you and I that we can take to the bank. So that's going to be, let's say, my first application point, which, you know, if ever I have application points, this is probably always what it's going to be. The first thing I'm always going to say is, you need to come to Jesus. You just need to come to Jesus. You need to, you're giving your life to something. You're giving your life to whatever the marketers are trying to get you to give your life to, whatever, whoever's screaming at you for their attention, you're giving your life to them. You're giving your life away. It's bleeding out. The ship is sinking. It's going to go down. Why don't you look into Jesus? That's an old Larry Norman song. You know, he's got the answer. Come to Jesus. Come to him right now for the first time and say, well, I'm willing to give it a try. Or come to him for the millionth time and say, Jesus, I need this. I need this life. Are you bored? Are you, is your life joyless even as a Christian? Do you want something to do? Do you feel guilty? Come to Jesus. He's got life for you. He's got it. He's got it all. Come to him and remain in him. Jesus says, Jesus says in John uh, chapter 15, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide, remain in my love. He also says in that, in, in chapter 14, or maybe earlier in 15, where he says, a branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, and so neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Don't go out and just try and do this. That's what I'm saying. 
Don't try on your own efforts to go out and do this. Come to Jesus. The only way you're going to do it is if he provides the supply. This is how it works, okay? This is, I'm going to give you the gospel very, very simply. The Father sent the Son to do a work that we could not do, to live the righteous life that we should have lived and have not, to die the death of a sinner that we deserve to die but don't have to die. He sent the Son to do that on our behalf, and the Son ascended into heaven so he could send the Holy Spirit to create in us a new heart and create space in our heart so that he could pour his love into it and empower us to live this new life. That's the gospel. Come to Jesus. Like, why would you not want that? And even if you know, you know, you've been following Jesus for a long time, you know this is true, why not get it again? <laughs> like, keep coming back. Keep coming for more. Stay in him. Stay in his love. Come to Jesus. Give your life to him. That's just the first one, okay? <laughs> second thing, second thing I want to note here is, notice the, the very first verse. It says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Jesus doesn't call together, you know, one person and say, hey, you and I got a special deal going on here. I don't know why he's giving them a noogie or something. You and I got a special deal going on here. And uh, if you do this, then, then I have this life for you. No, it's for, it's for the whole crowd, the disciples and the crowd, because salvation is not this individual project of, of an individual relationship with them. Of course it is, but it's so much more than that. Salvation means you're adopted into a family. So you have brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and parents and grandparents. You're all in the same family and you all got a family business. Right? We've got a family business to run. And you got a job to do in the family. Not only do you have a job, though, you have an inheritance. You have benefits. You have the, the belonging that comes of being in a family. So don't just go and try and remain in Jesus all by yourself. Connect with your family. Abide in him together. Speak of him to one another. Share the life that he's pouring into you with other people. It will pour into them. And as other people are pouring the life of Jesus out, you can receive it into yourself as well. That's how we remain in him. The third thing, I'm glad I'm getting some responses. I'm excited. I, I feel like you guys are too. <laughs> it's because of Luis's prayer, right? Uh, um, Lastly, remember that Jesus, Jesus is not just giving this abstract principle of, of the pouring out of your life, the embracing of your own suffering and death, and then a reward that comes. It's not an abstract principle. This is all for a purpose. Jesus is going to suffer and die on the cross to save for himself a people, a family. It's for the sake of the world. He says in John chapter 6, he says he gives his life for the life of the world. For the life of the world. So as we remain in him and we do it together, we don't just do it for the benefit of the family. It's for the life of the world. So together, as we remain in him, we share this. We share our life with the life of the world. For the life of the world. Share Jesus' life and love with others. So, I think I'm going to leave it right there. The only, the only sane thing to do at this point is just pray. So I'm going to do that.